Take a moment to pray. Come, Holy Spirit, transform our hearts and lives that we may reflect the mind of Christ, that we may live his life in this world. We pray in his name. Amen. This fall, we are walking up the mountain with Jesus and uh, paying attention to his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount may be the most influential message ever given in the history of humanity. You know, although sometimes I think if Jesus had given that message in church today, uh, we'd all come by to shake his hand and say, nice sermon, Jesus, good sermon. And one guy would probably come up to him and said, I, 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 I liked it, it was short. And, um, you know, but I didn't really care for that part about being persecuted. So I think you should leave that out next time. But, you know, Jesus isn't looking for compliments. He's not looking for a thumbs up. He is taking us up the mountain to our future in the kingdom. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that name? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian in prison for denouncing Nazism. Shortly before Germany was defeated, Bonhoeffer was executed, martyred for his faith. And I am a great admirer of Bonhoeffer. Here's something he said. The renewal of the church will come from an uncompromising allegiance to the Sermon on the Mount. It is high time people banded together to do this. High time, he said. People banded together to do this. Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount with a parable about two men. Uh, one of them built his house on rock, and the other built his house on what? Sand. A lot of you know this. So here's how the parable begins. Uh, it's up here on the screen. Let's say it together. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the key words here in this verse are, puts them into practice. So uh, I'm encouraging this to be our Bible memory verse for this series. So uh, I hope you'll write it down. There's a note section in the back of your bulletin. Some of you have cameras on your phone, so you can just take a quick snapshot of it. Um, last Sunday, uh, Marge Hartford from our church uh, came up to me and told me that she is trying to memorize the Beatitudes. She's over halfway done. And so anybody then younger, who's younger than 89 has no excuse, right? If Marge is doing it, uh, for those of you who may not know, the Beatitudes are the first 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, starting with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And having those verses in my heart means that I can call them up and I can meditate on them anytime I want, day or night. Um, I was in Nebraska City uh, recently and drove by the Oto County Courthouse. Uh, and there on the lawn stands this monument. You know what it is? Ten Commandments, right. And, you know, I thought, well, that's all fine and good, but why is it always the Ten Commandments? Someday I want to see a monument of the nine Beatitudes. Wouldn't that be cool, too? Today we're going to uh, take a peek 
into the lives of roommates Jarrell and Austin who are kind of becoming curious about the Bible, but today they're not quite sure what to do about anger. Let's watch. Uh, Aloha! Dude, did you drive my car? Yeah. Why? Because I was out of gas and needed to go to the store real quick to get snacks for my favorite show. Now I'm out of gas, and I'm stranded on the side of the road, dude. Well, you should have checked the gas tank. No, I knew how much gas I had. I didn't think you were going to take my car to get snacks. Calm down, dude. Man, dude, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. You know what I'm capable of, man. Yeah, I know. It's scary. You have an anger problem. Yes. Especially when people betray me, I get angry. You're angry all the time. You once screamed at that little old lady that you were going to run her over with your car. She was just walking with her groceries. How did she betray you? By wasting my precious time. See? That's a problem. Uh, this is your fault, man. You stole from me, and you know the Bible says thou shalt not steal. Oh, don't you dare. I borrowed and forgot to pay back. No, if you don't pass, that's actually called stealing, man. The Bible also says you should be slow to anger, and that if you're angry with your brother, which you are, and dream of killing him in various ways, it's a sin. Dude, you don't even go to church. Either do you. You just read the Bible to spite me. I'm not spiting you now. No, I'm angry because you sinned against me, man. Dude, if you're going to be a good little Christian, you need to get a hold of your anger. Yeah, okay. How about you just come pick me up so I can punch you in the face? All right, fine, but thou shall not punch. That is in the Bible. All right, so they're, they're kind of having issues with anger there. Uh, but we're going to talk about that. Jesus is going to talk about that. Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 21, and we're going to walk through the Scripture that LaVon read for us a little bit ago. And the Pew Bible, page 969. And uh, if you don't personally own a Bible, then bingo, today we're going to fix that. Just take that Pew Bible home. You can have it, read it, uh, find out what Jesus said, build your life on it. Now, in, the, in this passage, Jesus takes two of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery, and he's not throwing them away, he's not throwing them out, but he realizes that they are just sort of the base level of morality. And he wants to move us up the mountain. Follow along with me, verse 21 and the first part of verse 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And the, and the verb tense in the Greek implies that this isn't just a sudden wave of, of anger, but that it's anger we carry. We hold a grudge. We, we're resentful. Uh, if you murder somebody, which, I mean, you're going to have to stand before a human court, right? But even if you're nursing anger, Jesus says, you're going to have to stand before God. Um, have any of you been watching the uh, Ken Burns Vietnam uh, documentary? I've, I've been recording, so I've watched nearly half of it. Uh, it's been on NET the last couple of weeks. One of the people that they interview on, uh, Carl Marlantes, here's, he, here he is. He's a Vietnam Marine vet 
who has come to see our connection between war and this universal human tendency toward aggression. He says, we're a very aggressive species. It's in us. And people talk about how very well the military turns kids into killing machines and stuff. But I'll arg always argue that it's just finishing school. Anger and aggression are woven into our sinful nature. And that's why it's so easy for us to dehumanize, you know, anybody who's not in our group. And of course, very few people in the world will actually commit murder, but all of us know what it's like to harbor anger, even with a brother or sister in the faith. Jesus says that murder and anger are cut from the same cloth. A pastor friend of mine once attended a, a national Christian peace conference. You know, he was going to go hang out with the Christian peaceniks. And uh, he, he told me later, he said he was shocked. The conference was full of angry people. You, would you expect that at a peace conference? Je Jesus said we're to be the light of the world, not the heat of the world. Now, are there good reasons to be angry? Sure. Angry can be a, a helpful uh, emotion when it motivates us to positive action. But the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about is not positive. It's negative, it's personal, it's directed at someone or some group. It's the power of your dark side. And that anger is killing us and killing others. You know, I would love to have a conversation about athletes who kneel uh, in protest during the national anthem. But there are very few people I would trust to have that conversation with. Because there, it just seems like well, as soon as you bring it up, people are, you know, quick-tempered. Uh, they dig in their heels. They no longer listen. They lose their ability to ha even have a conversation. And I'll tell you this, even though some of you will not want to hear it, Colin Kaepernick, who started all this, is a Christian. He is a brother of Christ who believes that he's acting out of his faith convictions. And whether or not you disagree with, whether or not you agree with him, be careful what you say about him. Because we're going to read in verse 22, Jesus says, Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now that word raka, raka, is, it's hard to translate exactly into English, which, which is probably why our Bibles leave it in Jesus. It's, it's actually an original word of Aramaic, that Jesus', Jesus is language. But it's an insult. It's like calling someone an idiot. I didn't mean to look at you, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, so in your anger, if, if you call somebody an idiot or a fool, you're going to have to answer to God. And when Jesus says that we're in the danger of the fire of hell, we're going, oh, isn't that, isn't that punishment a little much for just, you know, an insult? But Jesus knows that our animosity is like holding murder in our hearts. And if you're determined to carry that murder with you into eternity, you're in trouble. 
because there's no room for it in God's eternity. Side note, and I know some of you are wondering about this, are there literally fires in hell? It's a good question. I don't think so, and I'm going to share with you why. I think it's a figure of speech, other, because other times when Jesus talks about the, the place of judgment, it's called the darkness, also a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I was thinking, how would it literally be dark if there's literally all this flame? So I'm, I'm thinking that, that the fire and the weeping and the gnashing and the darkness are vivid depictions of regret and anguish and isolation, a place where people cling to their idols instead of to God. You know, social media, Facebook, Twitter, especially others, I'm sure, turned us all into published authors, right? We're all published authors, except we have no editors. We, we pour out our unfiltered rage. We, we mimic the, the venom that we hear from others. We, ins we insult people of a different political persuasion or different theological understanding. We insult the jerk who drives too slow, and we insult the jerk who drives too fast. Meanwhile, we always drive at the perfect speed. And when we insult someone and we belittle them, we feel perfectly justified. But Jesus says, watch out, you're killing yourself and you're killing others. And then he gives a, a couple of practical examples of how to get rid of anger and its consequences. So we're going to look at the first one now in verses 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that, uh, that your brother or sister has something against, against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Uh, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. You know, in ancient Jewish religion, your, your gift to God at the altar might be wine or grain or, um, you know, livestock. Uh, and Jesus said, I don't care what it is and this religious duty you're doing, stop. Interrupt it. First, go and make things right with this person who's angry with you, even if they're wrong for why they're angry with you, and you might be angry with them. Jesus says, before you go, first, and so he's emphasized that word, first, go and reconcile. You know, in the early centuries of Christianity, uh, when Christians gathered to receive communion, like we're going to do here in a little bit, uh, before they shared the wine and the bread, um, they mingled around, and they mended relationships. They would go and confess to each other and they asked for forgiveness from each other and they forgave each other and sometimes it took a while. But they did it. And then when they were ready, they received the sacrament. What if somebody came up to you this morning on their way to receive communion and said, I'm sorry I let you down. Or, I, I sense that you've been angry with me. Tell me what's wrong. Or, I've been holding on to my resentment instead of forgiving you. Will you forgive me? 
What, what, a heal, what a Holy Spirit healing moment that would be, right? I mean, that would be the family of Jesus living the kingdom life. And then Jesus gives us another example of getting rid of our anger and, and the, the, the destructive consequences it brings. And the scene here is that you're being sued. And Jesus doesn't say why. Maybe it's because your cows got out and they trampled all over your neighbor's vineyard, but you haven't done anything to repair it. And you really don't want to do anything to repair it because a couple of years ago they wouldn't let the, uh, their daughter marry your son. Who do they think they are? You know, I, I've never been sued. I hope I never am. But if I am, I'm not going to like it. And it would be very easy to get really angry at this jerk who's suing me. And it's not my fault. Jesus says, Steve, you cannot let your anger win the day. He says, you have to be a peacemaker. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. So let's look at verses 25, 26. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And the key words here are, settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly. Don't be stubborn. Don't be bullheaded. Swallow your pride and seek a solution. And in the end, it'll be better, not just for that other person, but better for you. This is what disciples do. It's hard. It takes courage. And this is also where we say, oh, Lord, but I have failed you so many times. I have called people nasty names. I have gossiped about them behind their backs. And now you're warning me of the fires of hell. And that's where I think Jesus says, okay, let's walk back here to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is where he meets us in our failures. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus takes us to another one of the Ten Commandments. In verses 27 and 28, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we're going, what? I'm in trouble for looking? Well, that's what Jesus says. I mean, he sets the bar really high. And, and while Jesus is talking to men about ogling women, I think it applies to whoever you are ogling whoever you are ogling, I guess. Um, Hugh Hefner died this past week. Did you see that in the news? Um, his, you know, kind of, I guess you would call him a pioneer of the sexual revolution. You know, I think in spite of the progress that has been, made, has been made in the last century in women's rights and women's roles, there's a part of our culture that's more than ever that still wants to see people as bodies, as objects of fantasy. And we celebrate it and call it liberation. Jesus calls it adultery of the heart. Um, 
I, I told a story here in worship a couple of years ago. I'm going to share it again today. It's about a time when we lived in Lincoln. I was a pastor there, and, and one day um, I was driving on North 27th Street, or excuse me, South 27th Street. It was, it was a beautiful afternoon, kind of like some of the days we've had here lately. And I noticed uh, running on the sidewalk was this tall, slim woman, you know, just had really long, gentle strides. Her, her, her bare midriff was exposed. Her ponytail was bobbing up and down as she ran. And I noticed. I couldn't help but notice. Anybody would have noticed. It was the second look that got me in trouble. I'm driving, and I turn my neck for a better look. And just then, the car in front of me stopped short. So I slam on my brakes. My tires squeal. Fortunately, I didn't hit the car in front of me. And I wondered, just how many accidents does this young woman see while she's running down on the sidewalk? It's not a sin to notice the sin, I think Jesus is saying, is in the intention of our looking. What is the intention of our look? Dietrich Bonhoeffer also said this, Our bond with Jesus permits no desire without love. It permits no desire without love. Jesus says that, lustful looking is adultery of the heart and so I think he's warning us because he knows that it can ruin uh, us as well as having a negative effect on others it's not a harmless sin it's not a victimless crime it it brings the kingdom of hell into your life and that's why Jesus recommends radical surgery in verses 29 and 30 the end of our passage Jesus says if your right eye causes you to stumble Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this is extreme language here. But Jesus makes a valid point. The loss of a limb or an organ is small price to pay if it saves you from judgment. Or as Jesus would say another time, what good is it to save your life but lose your soul. But we also know that the earliest Christians did not practice amputation as a means of salvation. They, they understood what Jesus was talking about. And I believe that the kind of surgery he wants us to perform is immediate surgery. It's radical surgery, but it's not of the bodily kind. Over the years, um, probably in every church that I have been, uh, I have talked to men in our church have come to me uh, dealing with a, an addiction to pornography. And uh, some of them find uh, support groups, um, and there are some here in the city. Some of them go to counselors. Uh, some of them also set up filtering programs on their computers and uh, so it notifies their spouse and maybe their friends if they start to search for a porn site. Um, 
but I've also talked to men who have tried that and then find ways around it. You know, so now they're using the computer at work or they're stopping off at the library. And I can also tell you that not all of those marriages survived. Not all of them survived. Now, for me, that radical surgery means that I have chosen to be very selective about what I watch. Now, I'm not going to tell you how I handle it. And you, you, you and God have to figure this out, right? I can't tell you how to do it. But I have decided to become very selective about the movies and TV that I watch. So I use the IMDb uh, website. You know that? Internet Movie Database is pretty popular. And you go down to the parental uh, section, and uh, it, I use it for my own benefit. And there's also another website that I found that is really good. It's called commonsensemedia.org. And I found that the, the information that I gather from there is very helpful for me to determine whether I want, whether I'm going to make the decision to watch this or not. And why does Jesus recommend this radical surgery? Because Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Now, a lot of you have heard this before. I didn't come up with it, but it is very profound and I think relates to what we're talking about today. Will you say it with me? Jesus loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to leave you that way. And so, he knows just how we are. He knows how we have failed. And see, so he comes to meet us again at the base of the mountain where all we have to bring is our failure. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And then he walks with us a little farther, brings us along, and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we confess to you our, our sinfulness, our desire to possess, to desire what is not ours to have, to escape into worlds of anger, to, to escape into worlds of, of fantasy. And so, Lord, we pray that you will lift us up, that you will raise us to the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, we lay before you our failures, but also we're so thankful for your grace, your kindness to us, your goodness to us. Thank you for loving us so much that you, that you love us just as we are and also loving us so much that you don't leave us as we are. So, Jesus, walk with us. Take us with you up the mountain. We pray in your name. Amen.